Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, happy midnight. No matter what time you're listening, thank you for listening. It's the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show. Today, we continue our Artist Brain interview series with the man, the myth, the legend, Brian James O'Connell. Brian, or BOC as he's known, is more than a staple in the worldwide improv community. He's been improvising for years and years and is the ultimate ambassador for this art form and for this community that we call home. He's directed several feature films, including Bloodsucking Bastards and Angry White Man. He has a TV show called Hell Den, currently airing on the Sci-Fi Channel. Please go watch it ASAP. He's a writer, a director, an actor, a mentor, a friend, and an improviser. Fun fact about Brian that even he might not be aware of, this podcast, and especially our game tape episodes, was first conceived almost two years ago after reading one of BOC's Facebook posts. Yet another example of how he has inspired us. In this episode, we talk to Brian about his advice on starting up an improv theater, how improv literally saved his life, what he learned from directing three feature films, and his hot takes about what is missing in the improv community and in far too many improv shows. And he doesn't let us off easy. Brian, as always, was incredibly generous with his knowledge, his experience, and his passion. So please enjoy Brian James O'Connell. You're listening to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show. I've been trying to write a movie with that motherfucker for several years now. And we had just finally gotten the time. Like we were meeting at my house. We were like writing stuff. And that was, uh, that was late February, early March of last year. I don't know if you know what happened. Oh, wow. What happened, Brian? (laughs) (laughs) The silver lining is, is that to do these things now, I don't have to drive over to wherever the fuck Travis lives yeah, and meet you guys and be like, oh, do you guys want to get? Oh, you know, they're just finding parking, all that. It's like that's. I'm trying to look for the silver linings now. Like on the one hand, I Absolutely. do not look forward to now. All of us actors are going to have to know how to like write, direct, shoot, produce, just for auditions. I can't imagine once they look at the numbers and see how little their overhead is now. Having like, why the fuck are we renting out a place at 200 South La Brea and paying this show rent? We'll just. Why don't we just have people keep doing what they're doing, which is sending us demos of our own fucking commercial. Have you guys had that where people like there's so, oh, yeah, I'm making a short film in my fucking apartment. Yeah. You're going to yeah. shoot the whole thing and, and we're going to pay you very little for it. And you're your own crew. Yeah. I auditioned for a cat food commercial and it literally was like, we want a shot of you saying the line. And then we also want a shot of you feeding your cat and a shot of your cat eating. And like, if your cat has any tricks, show us those too. And it was like, this is a six hour audition. I'm not doing this. On the flip side of that, the fact that I never have to drive to Ocean Park at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday for an audition or a general get to know you meeting ever fucking again. Great. That's true. Agreed. Great. I'll get Could a lot happier. less parking tickets. That's for sure. Oh, right? easy. That's a silver easy. lining. I've just like my knowledge, my production knowledge and skill has upped so much because of that just alone. Mm-hmm. So I have to look at the bright side because they're not paying you anymore to do all of that. They ever, everything's going to move to the BuzzFeed model. I, I called this several years ago and then 
the pandemic was just gasoline onto the fire. When right. I, it would have maybe w- taken 15 years and now it's just now. <laughs> maybe five, yeah. to be honest. Because no, I, when, Mc, when Kevin McShane started working at BuzzFeed, which I mercilessly made fun of him for, I was like, oh, you work at the internet now. Uh, what, what's, what's, <laughs> what's your top 10 listicles, right? Just busting his balls. But he would hire me to do stuff. And this was back over five years ago, minimum. And and McShane, you know, McShane, he can do everything. He can write, he can direct, he can, he's a great DP, he can draw, you know, all that shit. It's him, it's a skeleton crew. Like it's him, one person who's like kind of a line producer, and then an intern like fresh out of college. And uh, like we're doing it, it's like, you know, why whiskey is better than other drinks, like that kind of deal. And I'm like, oh man, this is like we we were in and out in three hours. And I was like, oh man, you're really efficient, you know, like as like I am. He was like, no, you don't understand. Every week I have to pitch, write, direct, produce, edit, and post two, three to five minute videos per week. Wow. It was like the soap opera, yeah. you know, the idea of just being like, just get it done quickly. We, you know, yeah, but so now they're going to expect. They're, they're going to expect all actors to do that because if they don't, they'll just go get someone who will. People like us who are ready to do that stuff and adaptable or have film school backgrounds, the people I worry about, we're not recording yet, right? No, we are. I just didn't want to name names because I didn't want anyone to feel bad. But there are there are good friends of ours who are just straight actors who don't have the skills for that. They're not sort of handsy in that way. Like they don't have the kind of green thumb to get to dig in that garden. But also, to be perfectly honest, they have a great, great point. They shouldn't. They shouldn't have, have to do to. all that shit, but I'm worried that like, this is going to be, it's not effectively the end of their career, but it's definitely going to make their career fucking difficult because why get them when they can just go to you? Yeah. Why hire me if I don't want to use my editing degree on this project when they'll just go get McShane? We're literally wearing the same black fucking t-shirt. We have the same salt and pepper. What's the difference? The difference is that he can, he's, he's less rusty than I am as an editor and he's a better DP than I am. So why the fuck would you pay a crew to do something? You can just pay McShane to do all by himself. Every commercial is going to be the Dorito Super Bowl commercial. Honestly. Hey, let's have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, thanks for doing this. I'm like, thank you I'm for having me. I'm very I'm excited about the, this. I'm loving the bun or I don't know. Yeah. Bun. Jacob's yeah. growing his hair out right now. And I'm like, Good look, man. This is Thank you. I love it. That's exactly what I'm I'm like, Jacob, keep going. We gotta get to that. Man. Yeah, I have a couple of photos of me that where I def like right after the shower, if it's a little too low. This I have to put it up high up, so that's where I don't get wisps, especially because I'm I'm going to the grocery store later. So it's just easier I to relate, do this. I relate with this conversation so hard. Yeah. Uh, but there's some video there's pictures I have of myself where I'm like, oh, when it's down, I'm like, oh, Chris Christopherson from a star is born. Okay. All right. <laughs> Other times where I put slick it back into the ponytail, I'm like, ah, early Steven Seagal. Okay. Okay. It's like yes. looks you didn't know you could rock. I guess we should, Um, we'll officially start. Okay, and, cool. I mean, not like anything needs to change. We're just, yeah, but yeah. thank you. Clap your hands. Can get a slate, please? Yeah. <laughs> yep, sorry, um, second sticks. I was talking, it was, Anatasha was talking over it. Are we rolling? Are we rolling? Are we on? Are we on? Hello? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, I gotta say, this is what something that I love about you is that you're very considerate and meticulous. Mm. And I think kind of everything you do, it seems like across the board, you have strong opinions about things and you know how you feel (laughs) and you're like able to articulate that and be patient. Thank you. Yeah. Getting me to shut up is the problem. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that's all right. I've been saving a lot. I've been saving my hottest takes for Storm Chaser, because I felt you guys had earned it and deserved it. 
a lot of this stuff I have not talking about publicly, but if we're going to get into it, it's not going to be mean. You will be ankle deep in, in tepid room temperature tea by the end it's over. I, I, nothing's off limits. Whatever you guys want to know, let's talk about it. Let's get into it. We like it spicy, so let's do it. Well, I just I just taught uh, uh, two classes for four weeks, so I'm being like teacher rah-rah improv guy. Can't really like say that stuff in class, but now I'm like, yeah, let's rip off that Band-Aid. Okay, the level one students are gone. You're left with <laughs> these three idiots. What do you want to say about improv? Like, I feel like we, we should just get that out get that out there, you know, so that we don't miss those hot takes. Well, I guess, first of all, the, the thing that when anybody brings it up to me and like, hey, can I bend your ear? I'm like, yeah, sure. And I've had a couple of friends this year, some uh, some younger folks, some campers who are starting their own theaters now. Uh, Corinne Wells from Philadelphia, who lives in New York now and is like ex-UCB. I've known her for over a decade. Uh, her and several other uh, UCB expats uh, just started their own uh, theater, the Squirrel Theater, which I highly recommend. And then uh, my boy Tavish uh, just started a really progressive there. If there, if you could make an improv theater that is, you know, a democratic socialist come to life, that is the bird wow. improv theater in, in Baltimore. Every class is pay what you can. Every show is pay what you can. Every teacher is BIPOC or LGBTQIA. The man has gone so far that he puts in the descriptions for the classes we're going to be teaching the Herald. And then there's an asterisk. And at the bottom, it's like, Del Close was a misogynist and a racist, but we, and we do not put him on a pestle. But for historical accuracy, we must say that he has the, he is the inventor of the Herald. <laughs> right? Look at that. Oh, wow. look at the look on that Tellish face right now. Yeah, he's not, he doesn't mess around. Uh, so there's, there's great stuff like that, you know, and there's a lot of other, uh, good things. There's a lot of stuff going on in DC and Baltimore right now where like they're really going for it. I just got an email from Wit. Washington Improv Theater, they sent a survey to every single person that was on their mailing list and asked them, like, how can we be better? This is an anonymous survey. How can we be better? Uh, there will be no retaliation. How can we better serve our people of color? How can we better serve women? All that, like, it's really happening. But if you ask me, and when people ask me about it, I say that running two improv theaters is probably my limit. I'll, I'll never say never, but if a third one came along, it'd have to be, it'd have to be, it'd have to be a, a, a sweet deal that I, I could never turn down. Uh, but I think the, the number, the, the first thing I would do if I was starting today is completely divorce my training center from stage time. At best, one grad show so all your friends and families can come see what you've been working on that you're excited about. One grad show is a benefit, is extra bang for your buck for your class. More than one grad show is just now... It's an unadvertised burden on the student to now bring income into the theater. It's, uh, it's unethical. I believe, but also divorcing stage time from your training center goes back to the idea of what training and education should be is that you are exchanging goods and services, whether it is monetarily or an exchange of some sort of uh, work study or an internship program where you're getting this class free exchange. I think all of us interned at one point or another at some theater yeah. mm -hmm. for the, for the training therein. You take a cooking class to learn how to cook because you think it is valuable to your life and to your goals, either professionally or personally. You don't take a single cooking class with the idea or with the offer on both sides. You shouldn't go in with the entitlement thinking that you're going to get a job in a restaurant after taking that cooking class, nor should any cooking class offer the potential guarantee of employment after that cooking class. If, if someone did that, you should run away from that cooking class. But we do that all the time in improv. Also, that it frees us up from saying like, well, this person, well, they've, they've, you know, they've sort of 
tab, you know, they've sort of plateaued in what their skills are right now, but they work hard and they're here all the time. And they're such a nice person. We should put them on our house team, which would lead me to my second thing, which is you fucking get rid of all house teams forever. Hmm. It is you divorce if you divorce your training center away from that and it is not on a track or a path to be on this house team that will somehow deliver some sort of promised validation that you cannot the house cannot provide and then we can just put on stage whatever we think is quality and good right it hurts it hurts the work to to assume yeah. that just because you took a class we owe you something so separate your training center from your stage hardcore i'll say that's one and one a which includes getting rid of the entire house team structure entirely which is also dumb because it's like a house band the house band at triangle billiards in high point north carolina was the best band in the city and that's why they got fridays and saturday nights when there are 30 house teams in IO Chicago, the very concept of house team is or house band is ludicrous. My second rule would be I would put something in that place that would uh, make my monthly nut that has absolutely nothing to do with what I put on my stage, improv, sketch, stand up or otherwise. I do not make my nut off of that. There's a bar. There's a coffee shop. During the day, it is a business park. It's not there anymore, but one of my favorite places ever was in Cincinnati, Ohio on their on their main street called Sudsy Malone's. It was a bar and a laundromat that you saw live music at. They made all their money off the bar and laundry quarters. Everything else after that was fucking gravy. So that's what I would do if I was starting an improv theater. Our friends uh, in Kansas City, oh God, I'm going to fuck it up. It's Casey Green or look up uh, Casey Improv. They have a restaurant that serves fantastic burgers. And then next door, through a door, is where you go see the theater for improv and sketch. Your receipt for your for your meal is your ticket into that show. Full stop. That is what I would do today if I was okay. starting improv theater. I love that. And I don't want to totally derail you, but because you're talking about- You can't. I think about this all the time. You cannot derail me. <laughs> because you're talking about like money and art, I've been thinking a lot about how I want to be able to support my art- versus my mm -hmm. art supporting me and where that balance is because it's like I want to make what I want to make but also you know you mm -hmm. need to put food on your plate so what do you feel like do you feel like that translates to film or is it such an expensive medium that you that it's not the same I think it definitely transfer there are many people I mean film has never been more inexpensive to make and never been harder to get independent financing that's the that's the crux of what we're going through in filmmaking right now when I was at slam dance the big movie at Sundance was, you know, Tangerine, which they shot on an iPhone. And yes, they had some, you know, they had a specialty lens that they had onto all that. And they did a lot of like post-production work on it. But at the end of the day, it's still a fraction of what it would have cost to shoot on single, you know, single per 35 millimeter. But to more to your point, like filmmaking and like improv, I think there's a way that you can do both. Uh, John Sales does, you know, he's like, what, $250,000 a week. He's worked his way up to like $250,000 a week as a script doctor and then he takes uncredited and then he takes that money and goes off and makes passion fish or matawan i don't see there's any difference there if i go back now and think about how much time and effort that i put into io west as the bar manager i'm not like that's how i paid my rent and also i wanted for nothing i was on armando i mean everything i earned it wasn't because i was the bar manager but i was working really hard at a theater that I loved where 85% of the clientele were regulars and also my friends. 
I was paying my rent off of that, but I got to use the facilities when I wanted. I got to play in Armando. Dr. God was playing on Saturday nights. I didn't have anything to argue about. When I needed six weeks off to go make Angry White Man, they let me have it. When I look back at that time, I'm pissed off, not about the work that I put in. I'm pissed off that the work didn't pay off more because of such shoddy, slipshod, absentee landlord management from Chicago. Oh, my God. What that place could have been if everybody, if we didn't have to, like, swim with fucking 10-pound weights around our neck. You know what I mean? Oh, my God, yes. So I think it's definitely possible. A lot of times people are like, want to separate art and commerce from each other because that's sort of the purity test, which I also fucking despise, especially in improv. But that's also just the way where I look at art and commerce, best, especially if you can find a way to blend those two where you're the boss and you're in charge and you make these decisions, especially in smaller markets, especially in more bespoke theaters that maybe you're only open three nights a week and the other four nights a week, you're renting out for different things. That means freedom. You're in charge. You get to choose what is and isn't important to you. What a great gift it would be, Tasha, for you to own your own space, have to answer to really no one, but maybe the landlord in case, or maybe the bank, if you have a mortgage on that place, and you get to decide to put on a, a sign on the door that says, we'll be closed for two to three weeks while I go off and make this movie. We'll see you guys in March. Birds on Franklin every year over the Christmas holidays would close down for two weeks and do a deep clean. What's the difference while they're, while it's closed down to do a deep clean for two weeks, I'm off making a fucking film in Portland. Why wouldn't you? That's it's a blending of art and commerce to, to create individual artist freedom. I love it. Thank you. You got it. You may return to your five point improv. (laughs) I mean, like, and there's other things, a lot of it I covered there again, that's the kind of thing of like, Hey, if you saw what you, if you liked what you saw tonight, we got a place in the back where we teach classes. If not, that's cool too. And that's it. It's something It's something for fun. I would split them up the same way. Uh, I think Second City had an idea, a germ of a good idea of like the separate tracks, which is a lot of like, I talk about that with Bill Arnett, who uh, runs the New Chicago improv space in Chicago. Having that those tracks, he said that they did a, a survey an anonymous survey of the all the IO Chicago students. And it was basically just three questions. Like it was one question with three possible answers. Are you here taking classes because you want to be a working professional in the entertainment business? Are you here because you want to have uh, camaraderie, a good time, something to look forward to every week, uh, something to, to meet friends and get out of the house? Are you here for other? Please write in other, what your other reason was. And overwhelmingly, like, I think you said like 80 or 85% overwhelming them. Like, I want a professional career in the entertainment business. He was like, then why are we still teaching this fucking curriculum as if we're all here together and let's, let's all play and sit down? He's like, we are underserving our student body. We're underserving our clientele, our community. I just feel like you're speaking to like this. There's this improv philosophy on stage of like, yes, and accepting your teammates, everything's fun, play. But that idea has escaped the stage and it's, as a virus infected the business strategy of every theater. That is a lovely philosophy and it's true, but it's also not practical. A lot of people have come to us like either myself or some combination of us. The number one reason that teams, improv teams break up, probably also one of the reasons that Storm Chaser is a three-person group when it started off as a what, seven, eight-person group? Six. 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 Not trying to get into the drama of it, but like, oh my God, our skeletons are piling out of the closet. I'm going to edit this out. Don't worry. Don't worry. (laughs) But the point is, most teams break up because half the team wants one thing and the other half the team wants another thing. And then there is frustration and disappointment and bitterness and resentment because of it. 
Dr. God had a great run of doing improv shows and we were hanging out and we were best friends and we went to festivals and all that. And then we went to our first out of town festival in San Francisco and we took our boy Lillard with us and had a great time. And late night when in the Airbnb we're at, it was a lot of like, what's next? What do you guys want to do? Is this, is this enough for you guys? Or do you want some more? And we're like, that's a very fair question. And then we all met at Justin Ware's house and we had a come to Jesus meeting and said, what do we want to do? Is this enough? Or do we want to kind of try and see if this is, can be something more. And that was it. We stopped having weekly improv rehearsals and started having weekly production meetings where we brought stuff in and pitched it and said like, okay, what assets do we have? Who can do what? Who knows who? So when people come to us and be like, BOC, our, our improv team wants to like start making shorts and hopefully eventually like, how did you guys make a movie? Like, cause we all agreed to do it. Like that's the, it seems like a flippant answer. And also it seems like a very, uh, an overly simplistic answer, but that's, that it is the answer all five of us wanted to do it that's it we agreed how did you guys decide who was in charge of certain projects or did you divide and conquer okay it's it's not unsimilar because of our background it's not unsimilar to if i come to you guys and say i want to start a new improv team i've got this idea and you guys say yes to it and you agree to come to rehearsals and agree to throw in money and agree to the coach it is sort of unspoken that since i'm the guy that's the that had the idea I should like book the space. I should be the one that's the contact person. Same thing in sketch. If you wrote the sketch and the team says, yes, that sketch is going to the show, you're sort of quote unquote directing it. You're in charge of getting the props for it. So we do the same thing. So we take the lead on it. It's like, okay, I'm doing this. Like right now I'm working on something with Justin, but I'm also working on something with Sean. Sean is also working something with Marshall because the last couple of years we've been very good about expanding Dr. God and friends and family. There's there's always a, a, several irons in the fire at that time. And it's always just a very quick upfront conversation. Like, okay, who wants to take the lead in this? Or someone going like, look, man, I got two pitches right now I'm working on and I got a, I got a paid screenplay gig that I have delivered by April. Cool. Uh, I'll take the next two weeks. I've got a little open space. I'll take the next two weeks, draw up the treatment. I'll type it up. You put eyes on it. But once things get written, written, once it's a job, nothing leaves the circle without all five of our eyes being on it. We will do one last group polish, no matter what the combination of things were before. We all read stuff and pitch stuff, but before it leaves the five of us circle, before it goes out into the world, all five of us put our eyes on it usually in the same room and then they're just brutally honest anything below a b plus joke cut cut so that when it leaves not only do all of us know exactly what's leaving and what people are reading from us dr god the entity but we all have signed off on it we all know it and so if someone comes and asks us about it individually outside of that we can talk about it knowledgeably and eloquently to help sell it to whoever we need that's it. That's it. That's divide and conquer. And that way you don't end up, which is the second way every improv team breaks up, is that one person ends up doing all the work, booking the shows, booking the coach, paying it, making sure all the dues are in, making sure that, you know, chasing people down for Venmo and all that kind of stuff. And then they just say, fuck it, because everyone else just shows up five minutes before the show. And uh, as Darren Yalaki put it so uh, put it so eloquently, I was just tired of people showing up right before the show and deciding that they just had to be fabulous. And that was enough. Right. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Uh, so that's it. That's how you do it. I you just have this, to agree I mean, up top. It's, I find this really encouraging, um, because we Good. love working together, you know, and, we, and we're, and we're like still trying to figure out like 
where we're like what that lighthouse is and obviously this podcast has become a big part of that and that we're enjoying each other and 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 you know moving forward on that but i also really enjoyed hearing that that circle has opened a little bit you know because i think about you know making a short film and travis's wife is in it and i'm obsessed with her and i want to work with her you know a thousand times or you know jacob is like calls pish his muse and i and i love yeah I love that that family can grow. Yeah, we like the idea of having an ensemble. Again, we call it the Dr. God friends and family. Like we like uh, bringing those people in and those people are like now our friends, like, bringing our friends into like, into things like Blood Second Bastards. So like using Zabeth and, and Parvesh and, and Marshall and Mike Hughes and James Warfield. Sean and I are sort of taking the lead on our, our on our live shows with the sort of the blessing of uh, the other boys of like, we have grander ideas of what the producing is which is definitely, it's definitely great that Sean agrees with me because I have very grand ideas of where I think the future of not only of our show, but improv and production, improv production in and of itself, the theatricality of it. That's another thing I would change if I was starting today. So we were just right before pandemic, we were just going into the idea that like, it's not okay anymore for us to just be five straight white dudes in our thirties and forties on stage anymore. That doesn't reflect the culture. It doesn't reflect our beliefs. How is it that we are going so out of our way to make sure that our film and television projects are diverse and inclusive and bring on our friends like uh, actually Crystal Harrison and, you know, and, and Zabeth and Tim Jennings and, and, and people like that, but we're not doing the same thing with our live show. How are we not, why are we not putting forward a face that looks like, so right before we we're supposed to go down, we reached out to a bunch of different people. Dwayne Colbert is basically an honorary member now, Zabeth for sure. And so the idea of us doing our monthly show with just the five of us and then someone telling monologues who may or may not be a celebrity, those days are gone. We're not going to do that anymore. And so now we're going to, once we're able to do shows anymore, expand it and make it more of a like a variety show. I want to have a, we know a lot of great standups, making them the host. Have someone do a sketch. Have someone like Tasha show a short film. Make it a 90-minute show, a two-hour show, a bang for their buck, and put it in a place that has a cabaret feel, and there's a bar because our, our audience are definitely drinkers. I, I look at what the nightcap has done moving from the pack to not only am I friends with all those people, and I want nothing but success for Stacy and Cash and John Conroy, people who are very, very close to me, but I look at what the nightcap has done going from the pack to the Virgil, and I'm like, fuck you, I want that. I want that. Dr. God could fucking pack a house filled with a bar and then have a band and then a sketch and a video and a stand-up and a musical guest. Give me that. Give me that. Have Drew Drogi come out and do a character then later on have him take off the wig and just sit in with us during the revival. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. That's what I want. I love that. I'm, I'm loving the big thinking too. I'm trying to not limit myself so much to be like, what could this be? Um, I said it a year ago. I was like, if when we get out of this, I think I think I literally said it in March. I was like, if we get out of this and I come to your improv show and you're in street clothes and you're just kind of like, hey, and it's just a bunch of detached irony, I will boo the ever loving fucking shit out of you. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you take all this time off and then come back and just roll out that lazy fucking bullshit? Is it what is this like? Is this just the second unit scrub rehearsal? Like yeah. we're just gonna roll out a couple of basketballs and do shoot around? Fuck you. How dare you? Stay home then. It can't help but change the industry. It's going to feel so underwhelming. So let's move into what your thoughts are on the future of improv theatricality, as you put it. Oh, well, part of that it depends on what you think improv theaters should look like. The sort of the back end business side of it, of running training centers and all that kind of stuff. 
I don't see a way moving forward. And honestly, I just don't see the point of it. If you were going to rent out, if you're going to rent out a small black box theater to put up four improv teams that used to be house teams that I owned before they shut down or, or practice groups or whatever, and stick a cooler of beer in the corner and a bucket, like, and then only just have, again, just have some of your friends, significant others, maybe some people that are visiting from out of town, and then the other three teams. Why are you just not going to the house? Why are you not going to the person that has the biggest house and just move all the furniture to the side and just save yourself the fucking rent? Throw a house party. What those guys were doing in the Hollywood Hills was fucking dope. That was great. You have some, imp- you have three improv teams, and then you're at a house party in a, in a house in the Hollywood Hills. Just do that. But the, the pool party that Tiffany Alamon used to do in the summer, do that. It, it feels more punk rock. It feels cooler. And it just saves you the money and the hassle of like renting out a place. And also like, to what end? Are we are we evolving the art form in any way? Doing it that way? No. Then it's the idea of like, are we doing theater? Are we doing live entertainment? Are we Are we doing any sort of presentational art form? Then we should be using all the tools and techniques that every other presentational art form has been doing since the fucking allegory of the cave when they were using shadows they were using the sun as a, as a light source why are we not using lighting and costuming and production design and video elements and i have a movie studio in my fucking laptop right next to me why are we not doing any of those things to try and make this stuff look better why are we not using music why can i go see a band and be more entertained by what they're doing and then go to see an improv group and I go, why are we, why are we convincing ourselves that these elements are not available to us? And a lot of that is because of purity tests. I just want to do improv for improv's sake. Is that a bad thing? Is montage a bad word? BOC, I mean, like, it sounds like you're embarrassed of improv. I'm like, check my fucking credentials. Are you shitting me? What do you, you do? Like, what am I doing? What have I been doing for the last <laughs> decade and a half, almost two? How dare you? But I'm like, where is Kiss? Where is Destiny's Child? Where is the improv group where everyone goes, oh, fuck, I got to go see that. But it's like, no, I just want to wear my street clothes and my hat that doesn't allow me for you to see my eyes and rip shorts and flip flops. And now I'm demanding that you like pay attention to it and care about it. And I'm sick of it. I'm sick of that goddamn argument. You, You cannot sustain an audience weekly but you don't want to do monthly because you think weekly is something that you are entitled and have earned well i keep i see more shows than anybody and you have you have the same six people in your audience all week every week all year it we we can't sustain this anymore unless we want to resign ourselves to being a permanent niche art form like european handball something that will just never ever catch on anywhere but except the one place where it is has hundreds of years of of you know patriarchy behind it i refuse if i'm gonna die i'm gonna go die down swinging and if someone wants to say well you know boc doesn't do real improv anymore you know he's sold out great i sell out every fucking friday i'll put you on the wait list (laughs) it's it sounds to me like at least part of the problem is is just effort fuck yes and, and making choices yeah i think the one of the biggest traps with improv is that it's easy to produce you literally can't yep. show up with nothing five minutes before the show and do a show and sometimes that show is fun to watch but yeah it, it sounds like it if just get together and like make some artistic choices and put in some effort you can make the whole experience 
a thousand times more interesting and more moving and more powerful. This is where I said I was going to bring the hot takes. There is an unconscionable amount of people in our art form who use this art form as an excuse to be lazy with their craft. They don't have the guts or the patience or the temerity or the strength or the intestinal fortitude or whatever the fuck you want to call it. They don't have any of that to do sketch or stand up or write a screenplay or make a movie on their own. I'm not even saying going to film school. I'm not saying go to debt. Just make something, create something. They're too fucking lazy to do any of that. So they're using our art form as a crutch and a shield and then saying, well, I just want to go out here and say anything and get the, the immediate the immediacy of the laughter at my fucking whack, lazy hack dick joke, and then go to the bar and tell my five friends how fucking great I am. Fuck those people. Burn them alive with a flamethrower. Get them the fuck out of our art form. And I'll tell them, because I don't care anymore, because I, I, I'm not beholden to anybody but myself anymore. I'm not, I don't work for the pack. I don't have to be, I don't have to keep my mouth shut for the old man. I certainly don't have to keep my mouth shut for Sharna because she's out of fucking business now. Fuck them. <laughs> They're wrong. Stop being, stop being lazy bitches who's you're like, oh, what? Improv, you should be able to say anything, you fucking hack. You just want to be racist and sexist. A hundred percent. I I see that and it is mm. very prevalent in the community. It's infuriating. And it's in it, yes, yeah. and it makes me furious. Well, it makes it impossible for the people who are good when when they say, Hey, I've got an improv show, you should come see it. That it improv show is now tainted by all of the other I mean. I don't mean yeah. to say other because I've probably been guilty of what we're talking about too, but I just mean when people are lazy, it taints the entire art form. No one sees a bad stand-up comic and goes, ooh, stand-up sucks. I must never go see another stand-up again. No one sees a bad band and go, or, or sees an inexperienced band, I should be fair, an inexperienced stand-up and goes, all music is terrible. But we unfortunately have found ourselves where people have like, ooh, no, I've I've seen an improv show. It's not for me. Yeah. Because they don't know the difference. They don't have, they don't know the difference between a level three grad show and what is an actual show like Foursquare or uh the reckoning, because we've never given them any reason to know any different. And also because we're a very young art form. On the flip side of that, what have you taken from improv or what do you feel like improvisers who maybe like don't have that or have learned to push that aside? Like, what have you taken that in into your other art forms when you're directing, when you're writing? What's the stuff that you're like, yeah, this is this is how it translates. Well, well just just for quick clarity, what do you mean by it? The good part. You're just saying the flip side the of flip it. Side the positive. Of the, yes, the flip, flip side, side of it. How has improv changed and improved? You know, the other art forms that you partake in: filmmaking, excellent, writing, yeah. writing music, etc. I am constantly improvising. I've said that before that, you know, I'm a big position play guy, big deconstruction, you know, miles is my jam, but I'm constantly doing that. Deconstruction is not just a long improvisational format structure. It's a philosophy. It's approach to life. I do everything that way. When I, when I was doing held in our animated series, Dr. God's animated series on, on sci-fi approaching it like decon. Uh, analyzing it, deconstructing. What is this? How can I make fun of this? Is this a commentary scene? Oh, no, I need to, this is more of like, oh, this is more of a piece in the pot. I need to make sure that the joke is that we're just hammering it into the ground, those kind of things. Also looking at different ways helps me see things in different ways. Like a lot of people say like, what's like, what's your hook in, in entertainment? Like what, what could someone, if an agent or manager, I'm looking for lit representation right now. So if anybody knows, please, I am desperate. <laughs> uh, I feel like I'm dying out here. I don't like, I have a television show on the air and I've directed three movies and I can't get fucking arrested. I don't understand it. Um, but anyhow, they're like, what's your thing? I'm like, I think for me, 
I, I think very few people work with a dirty typewriter better than I do. If you give me disparate ideas and ask me to mash them together in a certain way and then make something valuable and interesting out of it, I can do that very well. And you said before, like, and you were very kind to me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very efficient. I pride myself on that. I've always got a lot of different things going on. I have, you know, I save everything. My bookmarks, as you've seen, are crazy. Yeah. Just for the audience, I asked BOC how prepared he is when he's like, <laughs> about to like write a pilot and he sent me like a three minute video of him scrolling very quickly down all of his bookmark references on his computer and it like one one for one project and it a made me feel like a schmuck i was like okay (laughs) (laughs) but then it also made me be like no you're ready to write it i'm like how do this? you know you're ready to write it? And I was That's like, when you know. that was 500 links. I'm dying. Yeah. <laughs> but it was also wonderful. Because a part of improv, you know, the, the secret of being a better, more interesting improviser is being a better, more interesting human, as Miles taught me. I feel like I can legitimately talk to anyone about any subject, not only just because I know everything, because I, I try to be very well read and start, study art and history and lecture and, and literature and lecturing and uh, academia, uh, biology, geography, geology. But also by having these approaches, the things that improv makes you naturally curious as a human being, it also uh, sort of attunes your instrument. I'm able to talk to people about subjects because I am, A, open to recognizing the context clues that gives me enough to keep the conversation moving forward, but also uh, gives me the, the peace of mind that I don't have to fucking pretend that I know what I'm talking about. I can be generally curious. So you talk about going into a pitch. To a network executive, my classic term, uh, this is this is mine. I usually, as you know, as a teacher, I'm very giving. I'm like, hey, steal from me, whatever. This is mine. This is mine. Uh, this is trademarked. I have said in numerous, numerous pitches, and I will again tomorrow because I got another one. You will run out of money to pay me before I run out of ideas for episodes for this television show. That's mine. And then it's true. And that's because of improv. It's made me generally interested in other people, but also interested in people. Uh, you know, what is it about these two people that will lead them to live the rest of their lives unhappy and or unfulfilled is a big proponent of what we're trying to do in the deconstruction, but in improv overall. So if someone gives me a script, I just did this the other day. Like I gave someone 17 pages of notes on their script and not a single one of those, like, this is what you need to do. I'm just like, people won't buy this because when this is, this is happening and this is happening. Okay. Well, uh, now, now you've, you're talking about, okay, you're deconstructing these films, which reminded me that we had a double feature weekend and watched and blood. I'm I'm very touched and and humbled. And (laughs) I just, I have a million questions about both of them, but I kind of would, I mean, okay. I guess we should start with killer view. um, Sure. Because it came first. I'm really curious. Obviously you said you have been studying serial killers for a long time, which Mm -hmm. really reads in that film. Um, You know, we're pretty nervous to interview you now because it just, it felt like, yeah. I felt like I watched a snuff film and it was- Oh, the, it's one of the original titles was snuff, yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it, did that come from that interest in serial killers or was there something yes. else? Yes, okay. it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. I appreciate that. I know she was like, would it be, would it be okay? Because Travis and uh, Fish want to watch it. I was like, tell them to strap in, you know. Uh, <laughs> 
And I'll say like, it's still the thing. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's still the thing that I'm most proud of. I think it's a comedy, but. Um, I laughed out uh, loud I, a few times yesterday at a hundred percent, especially because I was like, I feel so uncomfortable and unsafe. So that when there was a moment of levity, I was like, oh my God. Okay. Oh my God. We're okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it goes both ways. Like a lot of my friends from college worked on that. I called in all my favors. Like Neil Gargiulo, like sat down with me and like watched that the first time. And then we had been friends for a long time and done comedy together and had our duo. And it was after like the next day he was like, I saw that. And I was like, it's like, oh no, Brian's really good at making movies. He's like a movie maker. And I was like, oh, heart. But that movie has two, to this day, it's still my two favorite compliments. I call them compliments on my work ever as a director. An agent at William Morris, because uh, the producer took it there to pa- to try and package it. Uh, but yeah, a guy at William Morris said, whoever made this movie is socially irresponsible. And I was like, Mwah. <laughs> Thank you. And then the producer also had a family friend who was a retired profiler from uh, the the behavioral science unit in Quantico, Virginia, part of the FBI, the one that John Douglas and Robert Ressler uh, started. And he watched it and he told him, this is the most accurate depiction of a serial killer I've ever seen on a oh. uh, screen. Yeah, right. That look, that's the look my producer that's gave. So he was like, cool. oh. He was like, that's great. Can I put that? Can I put that on the like, can I put that on the DVD jacket? He was like, absolutely fucking not. You cannot quote me on that. And uh, just just so I can say that I said it, whoever whoever made this movie, I never want to fucking meet them. And I was like, yes! <laughs> I told Pierce, yeah. I was like, in order to make something this dark, you kind of have to not give a fuck what anybody thinks of your art because people do put, they put it on you. And you're like, oh, yeah. I'm just ma- I'm making, I'm just making something, you know? But a lot of people mm. hold back and it, you did not. You did not hold back in this movie. I couldn't. I was like, if I'm going to shoot my shot, you know, you always think to yourself like, this is the first of many. But I was like, if I'm going to do it, and that movie is 90, like 95% me. I I wrote it. I directed it. I played the lead under assumed name because I was in SAG at the time. And that's why, it's, you know, that's one of the reasons why I made the movie the way I did. I was like, I need to make a low budget non-union movie, but I am in the actor's union. So I need to tell a story. Whereas I can be, oh, I'll be a serial killer. You can't show my face, right? Uh, Zine, my boy Zine Baker edited it, but then he had to leave for another job. So he and his wife, Tracy, who was a goddamn saint, let me sleep on their couch for six weeks. And I did the, uh, I did like the polish and the final edit on it. I did a lot of the sound editing. I did the score under Endeavor. All that music is mine. That's me. I'm glad you yeah. said that. That is, oh that God. is a, yeah, that is a hundred percent. Like that is my movie. And I knew if I was going to shoot my shot, it had to be me. I was like, I'm either going to, you know, a lot of times guys get, get pigeonholed on who they were. I was like, well, if I'm going to get pigeonholed, I'm going to get pigeonholed being hundred percent me. And also this is probably the smallest budget I'll ever work with. Not that I've worked with huge budgets or anything, but like this will be the smallest budget. This may be the last time that I get full hundred percent creative control because there's not enough people who worry about get their money back and all that. And I, so I just went for it. That movie is hundred percent me. I have studied serial killers my whole life. The, I am fascinated by the banality of evil. You guys said you laughed. What 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 were the laugh lines for you? I'm I'm dying to know. Before okay. we get into the nitty gritty of like how there, I made it, there was one. I can't remember exactly how it came up, but it was something like, uh, "Do you ever think about having a family, or or do you yes! having a family?" And you're like, "I never really thought about it." I was like, uh, "That made me laugh." And also after he threw up, and you yeah. like come in the house, That's what that I was made me say. laugh too. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, man. Oh, God damn it. I stepped in your vomit. I think I think I have some of your puke on my shoes, man. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. This stuff looks like flan. You want fajitas later? 
I yeah, also the- loved. I also loved when you're like, I had to kill her, man. Yeah. I just had to kill because like, he like videotaped. Yeah. The- a purchaser and you're like I, just, I had to kill her um which also i mean made me very scared for him but i also was like kind of nervously laughing i thought it's so funny yeah i'm so glad that you brought up the uh it's it's that scene uh, i am very 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 proud of that scene it's one of my favorite scenes of like you know they're walking through because they used to do that on mtv all the time with like the hills you know and laguna beach and all that you know the oc where they would like have them like walk along with like really nice uh, frame and then like turn the music up and like force force the drama or force the melody or force the emotion what do you do when uh like if you get sick like what do you mean like i mean doctor sick or like if i get a cold like you know if you go to the hospital or something like i don't know who does a ninja call like that whole scene who and at the end that call? moment yeah and at that moment when he's like you ever thought about having a family I'm like huh never thought of. and there's that long pause you're just how can how could i bring a child in this world when there's people like me in it and then walk away from the camera raise the volume of the music I'm so glad you said that. It's it's probably hands down my favorite scene in the fucking movie. I'm so proud of how that came out because it's stupid. It was super powerful. I felt like it spoke to the theme of the entire movie in that point. It really put him into focus in a way that was like, this is a real person. This isn't an ambiguous serial killer character idea. Being completely self-aware that you are a monster, right? That idea of like, how do you know that pigs are the closest? Well, I I can read, Marty. Like, uh, you know... (laughs) That one, and then uh, Travis, do you have do you have a laugh line that we haven't gotten to yet? I was well, really hoping we you would avoid that question because I actually had to help my dad move all weekend, so I have not yet seen. It. <laughs> Great, <laughs> it's on I think, my list. I think the other one, yeah, I think the other one that I laugh uh, that usually gets a laugh is you know I usually I started off with prostitutes, you know, because you know they're transient. Now a lot of people aren't looking for them and all that. It's like, well, did you have sex with them before? The, no, Marty, but are you fucking paying attention to what I'm saying? Like you get this? And then there's that pause. That's my old writing partner, Martin Mokler, who who's also an improviser and like nailed it. It's just that like, so what did you um you know did um did did you have sex with them after now that's a fair question that's a fair question like <laughs> that usually gets a big laugh i also loved the it wasn't laughter it was the scariest moment to me is when mm-hmm. she's tied up before the gasoline and you say something like oh well i have impeccable timing oh the reveal yeah uh, yeah i was like oh man it just hurts it hurts my heart it hurt my heart so yeah. much i like was like i don't want to look at it <laughs> yeah that was tough it was uh she was she was a whitney was a trooper that night yeah i was i was gonna ask you as a director but also being in it when you think about creating this thing that's one thing but like when you then ask an actress to go through something that you're like this is like in mm-hmm. very intense is you are you just like that's part of the job or do you kind of understand you have to finesse that a bit yeah being an actor as well as a director and then definitely being an actor's director i'm very considerate like we took lots of breaks you know they always felt safe they always knew that there was a a clear line even if i wasn't playing the character i'm not the kind of director that like feels like i have to put you in like a an unsafe place to get the right performance like i'm not that i'm a very much of the this is probably the worst example of it but like the way that mel gibson will like do really intense scenes and they call cut and then he's playing pranks on people like three stooges type of shit like i'm very much that this is a job we're all professionals you've done the training I cast you because you were capable of this work. I don't need to torture you for fucking 12 days while we shoot this. That's the sign of a shitty director. So there are times, there was one time without giving away, because eventually I do want people to see it on a, on a wide scale. The scene that opens the movie, that one uh, needed a good long hour break 
after shooting. And I remember taking off all the costume and then saying like, good work, everybody. We're going to take a look. We're going to take lunch and we're going to have an extended lunch, uh, like 25 minutes after that. So if you need to, because we were up in the hills. So it's like, if you need to drive somewhere that that's cool, you just, just, you know, check in. And as everybody left the room and I'm just standing there with like the gloves on still, but like pretty much everything else off. And I'm just down the shirt. I'm like, oh, okay. All right. Um, I was proud of the work we did, but I was like, and then I just looked up and my first AD, Heath Michaels was just like, like you just like, what, what did you just make me watch? And this is me being so disappointed in you right now. I mean, that first scene, I literally yeah. was like, fuck, how long is this movie? I'm going to go. I was like, I can't, I was like, I don't think I'm emotionally capable of handling this for 85 minutes. Yeah. And then, and then, but then you tricked me a lot. I'm a big believer in you have to punch. You have to punch people in the mouth right up top. If you're going to make a horror movie, if you're going to make a serial killer movie, don't fuck around. Also doing it as a favor to the audience. First five minutes, you guys will do that. You'll you'll go through Netflix or Hulu or whatever. Like, well, oh, that seems interesting. I'll give it, I'll, I'll watch it. Like you'll give five, 10 minutes. I'm like, yeah, but I'm also going to tell you the first five minutes, this ain't for you. Feel free to take you like, you know, nope, click. Yeah, it's, it's an unsanitized violence. You know, I feel like it's yeah. people, yeah, I, I can't handle, it's like, well, I can't handle it. And you're like, well, you know, it's showing it for what it is instead of glorifying it or making it seem like it's yeah. beautiful in some way. It's not. It's fucking terrifying. <laughs> it just occurred to me now because of this interview and I had to to you, Tasha. I just realized that like uh, Ben Franklin in that movie uh, pretty much has the exact same philosophy I do uh, when it comes to art and commerce. <laughs> like... <laughs> He did he did what he loved and found a way to monetize it so that he did not have to. I mean I I mean I hate to say it, but like uh thank you. that had not occurred to me until yeah. this moment. That's pretty relatable. Almost 17, almost 17 years later, I went, oh fuck. Oh, oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. I guess I guess I have not changed since 2006. <laughs> even in something that intense, you know, who you are kind of slips in in places, even when it's very far from you. And I encourage this when I talk to people about making their movies, like make make it something that's a passion project of yours because it may be the last time you ever get to do it. Was Bloodsucking Bastards your second feature? Third. Killer View got me my second one because Brian Mandel and Bob Hardison. Brian Mandel was the DP on my on on Killer View, and I'm also one of my best friends. I went to college with him; we lived together. And Bob Hardison, also one of my best friends, who I also lived with in college, they were in Wilmington, North Carolina, putting together a comedy, a Southern comedy that Bob had written and was going to direct. And he and Mandel were producing it together, and Mandel was going to shoot it. Uh, but then our buddy sounds weird. I, I promise I'm not name dropping. I'm just doing it for the show. Our buddy David Gordon Green, that we all went to film school with, he and Bob are still are very very tight. Bob gave him the script and Dave was like, this is super funny. This is great. But Bob, this is you. Like you need to play the lead actor. You need to play the lead character because you're going to rip your hair out trying to get someone to do the way you would just do it naturally. And Bob's a very, very good actor. I think Bob's a very underrated actor. He doesn't give himself enough credit. And then it was that moment of like, well, I shouldn't direct it, write it, star in it and produce it. That's too many hats. That's usually how movies go bad. And they were like, oh, what are we going to do? And then Mandel was like, look, I worked with O'Connell on Killer View, which was a very you know, intense set because of the subject matter. We're all friends. We all have the exact same sense of humor. We'll just get O'Connell to direct it. He was like, oh, fuck, of course. So Mandel called me up and said, hey, 
we're thinking about shooting uh we're gonna make a movie do you want to direct it i was like fuck of course yes but i guess i should read the script <laughs> like, a, like a, a, a responsible professional and i read it that night he called me on a friday i got the email on friday night i read the script on saturday of course it's i thought it was fucking hilarious because those are my boys and we have the same comedy sense i went to sean cowig and brian connell's house for the uh, super bowl the next day and then mandel called halfway through he said, what do you think? I was like, dude, I think it's fucking amazing. Yeah, I'm in. That's all I need. He's like, cool, because we're thinking about shooting in April. I went, of this year? Whoa! <laughs> February 6th is when I got the phone call of the at the Super Bowl, and then April. So I started doing a bunch of stuff, started getting all the pieces in place, started getting my six-week. I got my two-month leave of absence from I.O. Dr. God went to Phoenix Improv Festival with Lillard to do that festival. And when they all flew back home to L.A., I flew to North Carolina. And then we uh, we shot that movie. That was on single perf, 35 millimeter. So I went from disposable cameras to 35 millimeter. And that movie stars Matt Berry, Scoot McNary, Steve Agee, and Mary Birdsong. Where can we watch that? So I think it's on Tubi. I know it's definitely on Amazon. Uh, oh. Ang- Angry White Man is the name of the movie. It's a, a Southern fried comedy. <laughs> that's, a, that's a movie that if it came out today, it would get me canceled. <laughs> I'll put it this way. The only redeemable character in that movie is the black Jehovah's Witness, and even he smokes weed. <laughs> I've been a big fan of Matt Berry for a long, long time. I think that was the first. I think that was the first American movie he did was Angry White Man. Wow! So I got, I got to, I get to hang my hat on that as well. I just having this memory of sitting with Travis mm-hmm. before Bloodsucking Bastards and being in a theater with tons of improvisers. I heard that story. That was very nice. Yeah, and thank just you. like it when it's it says like the credit says like written by dr god everyone like lost their minds just like cheering yeah. and so i'm wondering what that experience coming into working on i'm assuming the biggest budget that you'd had up to that point or i'm, I'm not sure but oh, just for, this kind of for a sure. huge thing with your team and what like what that writing rewriting process was like and then being on set with them and stuff well i mean it's great again because we all sort of like share a common language and we all get Divide and conquer. Uh, Justin Ware probably did the heaviest lifting of all of that. I mean, Justin's WGA. He's he's sold pitches to 20th Century Fox, you know, Sony. I sometimes have to remind myself of like uh, his list of credits. <laughs> <laughs> he did a lot of the heavy lifting, but the way it, way it started off is it was a pre-existing script that had gone through several directors and several drafts. You talk about improv being uh, helpful. We exercise. We exosized one aspect. That really they they just went because they were just too close to it. The producers are too close to it. And they just went, oh, oh, just don't have the cops show up. Like, yeah, get rid of the fucking cops. Why do the cops once the cops are there? Evan's no longer your hero. Evan's just this schmuck that nobody believes. Like, yeah, get, condense it. Just make this happen over instead of having the course of two weeks, two days, 48 hours, just amp it up. And then the cops never even show up because there's no time for the cops to show up. And that really like unlocked a lot of it. And so we took Ryan Mitz's script. That just only had that sort of one fatal flaw that no one could like get past. At the time, me and Sean were still bartending at IO. So we were on different schedules and Justin gets up at the crack of dawn to like work out and stuff. So Justin would write from like 6 a.m. to noon and then send us over pages. And then Sean would come over to my house sometime between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. We would write until like 6 or 7 p.m. whenever one of us needed to go bartend at IO. So we turned around, we turned around a first draft. I think in less than 15 days, just because we know each other so well. And then like, so then the next day we would, same thing would happen again. And then we would like 
go back and re- read what Justin had either polished up of our stuff plus plus the pages he had written, and then we'd go back and like, oh, that's better. Like, mm-hmm. never once in a while, there, I think there was only like three jokes where finally all three of us had to get on the phone together and be like, okay, Justin would keep going back in and changing something, and me and Sean would keep going back and changing it back to we, we liked it, but it was just like lines of dialogue. He was like, guys. Guys, can we just so that that happened very quickly, and then uh, on set, Justin did a lot of uncredited like passes and writing and stuff like that. Because how can you not? He's a producer on the thing; he has a vested interest in it. I'm directing. The other boys are are acting. He's also acting, but he's acting as since he's the producer on it as well. He's acting as the voice of Doctor God. So him in the room pushing for the stuff that we wanted. Then the other four producers on it would be like, okay, well then you go, you go and, and write that the stuff that we've all agreed on. So it's a lot of like, again, just a lot of divide and conquer because we have such great improv backgrounds and every all the actors are so naturalistic and great at their jobs anyway. A lot of people think because we're an improv team, a lot of that movie was improvised, but it's not. I'd say 85 to 90% of that movie is scripted. There are very few improvised lines. And even then those lines are not truly improvised in the sense that they they would change character or story or plot. They're, they're alts. You know, they're they're one offs, they're they're riffs, you know, riffing. Yeah, I mean, watching it, I've seen it before and the rewatch, mm. I was like, there's no way because it's the filmmaking's too intentional. So I could see being like, well, we got to change like the way that the joke is said or presented. But I, cu- I can't imagine more improv than that because I, I felt like it was very um, intentional. And we just didn't have the time to improvise. We had 18 days. I begged for 20, but they're like, no way. <laughs> I kind of know what I want. I kind of have it all in my head. Not only like from the improv brain, but also because of the BFA and film editing, I can kind of see the whole film in my brain. Script supervisors love me because I've already done their work for them. At the end of the day, before the director leaves, he and the script supervisor have to get together and make sure that they match up, that their notes are the same. These are the right takes. This is what this is. We're, we call this 5D and not 5C, correct? Because we cut that other shot. 10 minutes because all my stuff is already done. And then because I am an editor, editors love me because I give them my director's notebook that has all my notes in it, which takes I liked circled, which ones were NG, which I want the first half of this take and the second of that take. So when I, I, I give that to them, I leave for two weeks. And when I come, when I come to the editing room two weeks later, my assembly cut is really closer to like a fine cut or even a director's cut because I've already told them all the stuff and it all fits together. They're not, they're not having to do a lot of like, uh, yeah, this doesn't work. Or like, I was going to play around with something because it's, it's, it's a lot of, it's just assembling. So it's like, ah, fucking easy, free money. You know, I'll edit this. So you just don't have time. And so the way I direct is I usually, I make a deal with actors. I'm like, look, man, I'm also an actor. I'm an improviser. I don't care where a good idea comes from. As long as it's a good idea, we'll use it because I don't have that kind of ego. And it's still going to say directed by me. I'll use an idea from someone who's working craft services. If it's funnier than what I had, great. Uh, and I'll hire that guy again. <laughs> You'll do all my movies, sir. With a promotion. With a promotion. They won't be in yes. craft services forever. <laughs> but but I'll tell the actors, I'm, look, just give me, give me the first two, just as it is in the script. Let's nail it. Let's lock it down. And then I'll, I promise you, I'll give you two to three to play with. And I almost never did more than three takes on anything I've ever done. It's rare for me to do five, six, seven takes of a, of a thing, especially performance-based. Not action, not stunts, just performance space. I've, we've got it locked down, and now I've given you free permission to play with it. And then they do the thing they want to do, and then everyone's happy. And then all, and then it's a combination of like once you're in the editing room of like, well, this is kind of funnier, or this is kind of better than what we had, and so it's a real, 
it's a real mix and match in that point. But I, I think the way that this one worked out, it's like it's 85% scripted, 85 to 90% scripted with the other 10% just being fucking bangers because Joey Kern is a, a joke machine. Three, three ideas a day, minimum. Do you, working uh, on, I mean, you've named a few of my childhood crushes uh, that you've worked with, let's be honest, but working with people who have such insane performance resumes and being an actor yourself and, and a director's actor, mm -hmm. as you said, what are things that you've noticed about how they are on set and their prep that you feel like other performers should know. Yeah, there's three moments in particular that stick out to me. First of all, a lot of it is because they are professionals. They've been around for a long time. They've done like Joey Kern has done like go go to his to you know apologies to Drew Drogi, but go to Joey Kern's IMDb and pack a lunch. Right, he's done a lot of movies, and I think all of them sort of know, sort of like within like the first couple of days or a week, what kind of movie it is. Right, they get the vibe of the crew. Does the director know what he's talking about? Is there shadiness going on? No one can really give you a straight answer or anything. But in like a weekend, they kind of all knew they were like, yeah, I think we got something here. This is nice. You guys are all really chill and cool and get along. And there was one unfortunate one. We had to let one actor go just because they, they weren't up to snuff. They didn't misrepresent themselves, but they certainly led us to believe that we were going to be getting a different performance than the other. And that's the one where everyone's kind of like, uh, and we made the decision. We're like, hey, that guy fucked up this morning. We can't afford to have another morning like that because we only have 18 days. Pull the trigger. And then to see those reactions of those guys going, oh, they're serious. Okay, they're not going to let, they know they're going to take care of us. And then the other two moments I knew were Joey came up to me and was like, I told this story two days ago, so this is funny. I'm telling it again. Joey came up to me and was like, hey, Joel Murray's got an idea for for a joke can he come and tell you to and i was like i've known joel longer than you like yeah of course what are you, what are you talking about <laughs> he's like uh what uh, uh maybe in this next scene when uh joey uh joey stabs dave he can say yippee ki -yay, ticonderoga <laughs> because the ticonderoga number two pencil i was like oh that's really funny yeah we're absolutely doing that and joey went yes. <laughs> the test of a film chemistry or camaraderie amongst cast and crew when they when everyone's sort of locked in when you have an actor coming to you asking if another actor can pitch you a joke for them to say for a scene that they're not, Joel Murray's not even in that scene and he's pitching a line of dialogue for Joey to say, and Joey is the one that's psyched for Joel that he got a joke in. You're in great shape. The one that really stuck out for me where I think is sort of closer to the question you're asking me of like all these serious people with such great backgrounds and, 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 and talent and, and really dedicated themselves to their craft. I mean, Fran Kranz does not take a single scene off ever does not take a single takeoff. That guy was treating my movie like he was on the fucking set of Josh Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing. Like, you know what I mean? Like he was uh, he was treating my movie as seriously as fucking Cabin in the Woods. That guy is a consummate professional. He wants to make sure that he's doing the absolute best work and giving you everything you need to, to the point at the very end, like, and we're still friends. At the end, he was like, on the last day, he was like, I hope I wasn't too much of a dick. I was like, no, man, like you... You are trying to give me the absolute best performance. You weren't half-assing anything. I mean, it shows. Sorry. So great in it. Watch his new movie, Mass. The movie that his directorial debut that just came out in, in, at Sundance. There are four characters in it. It's his directorial debut. He wrote it. I read the script for it. Three people are getting nominated for an Oscars out of that, if not, if not winning them. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Every review I have read has said this is Jason Isaacs, the performance of his lifetime. That's who, that's who Fran is, right? Sitting there uh, in between setups, 
the, it's at the end of lunch and they need 25 minutes to turn the turn the lights around to, to, to flip the world, aka. And uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman had just passed away. Uh, that's we were shooting then. Mm. And so Pedro, who is in a, an impeccable suit and looking only as gorgeous as Pedro can, he was in the theater company in New York that uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman started. And Fran, who is covered in blood, because we're at that part of the movie, you know, that part of the show, he was uh, in Death of a Salesman on Broadway with Philip Seymour Hoffman. And both of them are just having this quiet moment right around Video Village where I, I'm sitting by the monitors and everyone else is kind of off doing their job. And so this is one kind of quiet, dark place where they can talk. And they're just sharing stories of like how giving Philip Seymour Hoffman was to both of them, how great he was to work with, how passionate he was about it, uh, how it's a lot for him to like see them and know them and remember. Like, And I'm just sitting there in my fucking director's chair and I'm like, these two guys are like legit real deal actors and they are mourning their friend who happens to be, you know, maybe arguably the, the one of the greatest actors of his generation. And uh, Fran is fucking covered in blood and uh, Pedro is rocking a rented suit. Um, and they're in this movie. Like, is it that fucking hard out there for an actor that guys of this quality <laughs> are in my dumb little vampire movie. And it really, to be honest, it humbled the shit out of me. I was like, it, they're here. How could I possibly ever in the future big time anyone? How could I ever have the gall to be like, don't you know who I am? Or I directed such and such. I don't give a fuck. And that's why Pedro is, is getting all the flowers that he is right now. That is one of the nicest, most decent human beings I've ever met in my life. He deserves every fucking thing that has come to him right now. When people talk about like, oh, I'm having a hard time separating the artist from the art. And like, I love this movie, but I know he's problematic. Zero with that with Pedro. You enjoy everything that guy has ever fucking touched because he's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that man inside or out. He's great. And he's going to go for the hand. You guys know the hand? It's the new EGOT. No. Being the lead character of, a, of an HBO Max, Amazon original, Netflix, and Disney Plus. Huh. He's one away. Wow. He's got the Mandalorian. He's got Narcos. He just got cast as uh, uh, as the lead in Among Us. Uh, the yep. Last of Us. The Last of Us. He just needs one more, and he'll have the full hand, baby. He just needs HBO. He'll get it. I mean, technically, he has that because of Oberyn. Counts, but, you know, right? Yeah. <laughs> but he's not. But he's not the lead in that. You know? mm. Yeah. Can I shift? Wow. Can I shift a little bit, Brian? Because I'm I'm interested sure. to know your level of awareness slash acceptance slash you you're you're sure. a guru. You inspire a lot of people, especially in the improv community, but also in the writing and filmmaking community. I'm uncomfortable with that term, but thank you. I okay, that's that. kind of it's that's what flattering. I'm curious. I'm dope ass teacher. We'll just go with thank you. <laughs> D-O-T. D-A-T. Okay. You know, no, yeah, stick stay you your ground. Do, you stay do regular ground. AMAs on Facebook and, and other platforms where people pick your brain. You're very generous mm -hmm. with your knowledge. I so I think it's I think it's fair to call you a guru, but I am curious. I'm curious about how you landed there and if you ever meant to land there and how you feel about being one of those people in this community. Thank you. That is very, that's very, uh, that's very kind of you. I've, I've, and sincerely, I, I appreciate that. The only reason I bristle at the term guru, not that I'm not humbled and honored, it's that uh, guru has so very often been used as, as a way for people to take advantage of their position. And that is so, that is so anthemic to Act me. Act like Del Close and just be like, yeah. <laughs> but also a lot of people who don't have the, the talent and vision of Del Close, there's been a lot of mini gurus I've seen over the last several years 
who have taken those positions of power and use it to hurt people, which is not only the antithesis of the work we do, I am fundamentally opposed to as, as just a human being on this planet. Improv saved my life. I've been very open about that. I got lucky to find it when I did. It's giving me my best friends. It's giving me opportunities like this. I, I, I love that I get to call all of you friends and to have people that are as lovely and as talented as you say nice things about me. I'm sure that makes my mom feel very good as well as me, which is always important. It's giving me the woman I love and who I live with. And it's giving me all these kind of opportunities, giving me my brothers and Dr. God. So I'm very grateful. And I feel like it is a, a sacred duty to give back to the thing that has given so much to me. It, it's the first thing I found that made it, man, I was worried this was going to happen. It's the first thing I found that told me it was okay to be me. Um, I was very successful playing team sports in high school. I played club soccer, you know, state championship as a freshman. I did speech and debate. I went to nationals. I went to music. You know, I, I played in bands. I've opened for bands that you and musical groups you have definitely heard of, but I've uh, constantly feeling hollow and, and, and empty inside because that's how the disease works. You don't see in the mirror, what everyone else sees and finding improv and finding that term that you, uh, you are enough utterly changed my life. Knowing that about myself and doing the research on what other people feel, the law of averages states that there has to be someone in the audience or someone in my class who is feeling the way that I felt. And I have I have to give of myself to the point where at least they know that someone cares about them or is genuinely interested in what they like and that it does get better. The things that you're doing and the things that you think are funny and the things that you think are worthwhile are totally cool. And I think they're cool. And if you think I'm cool, that makes you cool by association. And then therefore you should probably stick around and continue to be cool. How can I, how can I not uh, give that back if I have an opportunity. And all it costs me is time. The reason why you probably don't see a lot of the uh, famous people I know hanging around in my circle is because between the ages of 13 and 24, I thought about killing myself every day of my life, which made me very, very difficult to be around because I would project, I would hold myself to impossibly high standards and project myself on other people. I was a right prick. And it's hard for guys... <laughs> I don't want to name names. Uh, that's unfair to them. But it's hard for guys who are Marvel movies now. That's hard for guys who are in Stranger Things now. That's hard for guys that are going to be not that are nominated for Oscars now to forget that part of 20 years ago and how horrible I was to them. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them. But that means it's incumbent upon me to spend the rest of my life atoning for hurting people that did not ask to be hurt. And the only way you can do that is by helping people. My girlfriend makes fun of me for it, but it's 100% what I do believe. She says, you know, you're a good man. And I say, I try to be, and that's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to keep trying to be and helping people. And if it costs me nothing but time, and let's be honest, like it's, it, it personally makes me feel better. One of my old mentors from, from film school, God rest his soul, William E. Buck gave me a great one. Brian, when you die, his old Arkansas line producer, Brian, when you die, you only get one line on your tombstone and you don't get to write it. What do you want it to say? At the end of the day, I love doing stuff like this. I love talking to shop. I love helping people like you because you're good people and you deserve it. And if I can do anything, even my modicum of success, if you want to even call it success, I'm happy to share it because a high tide raises all ships. And then like, look, are you not going to hire me later? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like it's also just, you know, if you want to objectively look at it, it's just good business. It's a good, it's the good business of being a person, but it's also the good business of being an entertainment business. 
having people say that like, oh no, that guy, that guy is good. That guy will take care of you. Oh, if that guy, oh no, if he, if O'Connell says he likes your script, that's a fucking funny script. You can take that to the bank. Cause he's not going to blow smoke up your ass. I appreciate you being so vulnerable and sharing no worries. that takes a lot you asshole <laughs> yeah <laughs> thanks Trev. and also i just want to say i felt that taking your class that i was seen and taken care of and um that i could ask you anything so mission accomplished Good. thank you <laughs> Yeah, there, I have an exchange with you when I was young at IO i think stormtroopers had just started and i maybe got to IO a little early and you had walked in or something and you said hey, what's up tlc the fact that a you knew my name second you knew my initials and and then and then i <laughs> this, this is now me making it more important than it was but it, it still remember it because i was like oh man he he gave me an initial name and he has an initial name and pob <laughs> has an initial name and abd like these are all really awesome people and he just gave me an initial name i felt very accepted you know what i mean it was awesome. a really like awesome. cool moment for me. Well, that's the thing. You never know what it, you, you never know what anyone's going through in yeah. life, right? I've done that in, in stuff before where I've, I've I've mentioned that in classes or in workshops I've done with people. All the all the stuff that I just the vulnerable stuff. And I can tell afterwards people are like, "Oh, that's a really good class. Thank you on that." And there's like four or five people saying like, "Oh, thank you for the class." I really I was like, oh, "I was really great stuff." I never heard about this position play. I'm definitely going to try it on stage tonight. I'm like, "Oh, of course, right." But I can see them. There's always the one person in the group, one or two. You can see the look on their face and they're hanging back. They're they're part of the, the scrum, but they're hanging back. I was like, you're waiting for everyone else to get done. That's fine. I got you. I, I I clock you. I know what this is. And then they come up and without fail, they maybe a word or two that they get out before it's like, I was like, and it's immediately, I was like, hey, let's walk over here. Yeah. First things first, we're survivors. We're still here. So that's the part. Whatever you struggled with, you overcame because you're, you're standing here talking to me. And I'm proof putting that it, at least... At least it's one more step up from wherever you are right now to like to the point where like you can turn around. I want to come back here next year and you're teaching this fucking class. I want to come back here five years and then you, you're telling me about your movie, right? We're going to make a deal. And it's a handshake and a hug. How can I not? How can I not chase people? We talk about, you know, chasing the dragon when it comes to like good improv shows or good improv sets. That's a dragon I chase. If I can save one person's life or at least buy them a, a, a couple more months, a year or two, something. I've done my job. I've done my job. That's how that's how I see my job. As far as professionally, I've directed three feature films. If I direct two more before I die, my film school will have to do a weekend retrospective of me. You know what I mean? Like that's <laughs> to me, that's the bar. I'm like, I just if I do five, that's enough to do a weekend long retrospective where they force the students to watch it and talk about it because that guy went to school here and then I will have done enough to just not be forgotten. Yeah. It's all about balance, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's the way I look at that. Yeah. Cause I was really excited to do this interview because like Travis and Natasha have shared, you made a mark on the Iowa West community. I, I had just moved from Austin, the Austin improv community, which yeah. at the time, I think it's changed a little bit, but at the time it was very warm. It was very accepting. Were you a, were you a cold town guy? Were you a, no, I was a hideout. Movement? Theater. Had that happened at that point? Hideout, hideout. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Roy, Roy and the rest of the gang. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so they're, they're still good. They're still good. Doing good. Oh yeah. Knock on God. wood, but they are incredible. And I am indebted to them for the rest of my life for giving me improv. They're great. I just saw a parallel P graph. However you say yeah. it. They just did a show in Denver in 2019 when I was there teaching. So we got to hang out for a good long while. It's fun to see those guys. Yeah, they're fantastic. Please, please continue. So when I came to LA, it's just there was markedly a different energy in the room with people and what they're there for. Yeah. 
but you were someone who was a leader in the community and who would say hello to me and who knew my name. And to have that beacon of warmth also be met with a vision of what the improv world can be was beautiful. And I think it inspired me to be warmer to people and to, for us three here to make the improv world more accepting, but at the same time also not let us lose our vision for what improv can be as an art form. So thank you. 100%. Thank, thank you. Could, could not have said that better. And I'm, 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 I'm proud to be a, a small part of that. One of the benefits of traveling all around uh, the country of doing improv festivals and all that stuff and meeting all these great, great, great people like the people at the hideout. As Fernie, Alex Fernie, the smartest man in improv, as I call him, uh, as Fernie rightfully pointed out, we're the only improv community in the country that other people leave their improv communities to move to. And so they're always... There always seems to be this. I'm I'm fortunate enough to have this influx of people coming in from places. Then, even if even if we don't know each other, we at least know some of the same people. And then it's that instant sort of camaraderie, like, oh, you know, Roy and Helen. Oh, they're great. They're like, what are they up to? Oh, they're doing good right now. Like, oh, I gotta call them. Like, great, yeah, yeah. Tell them. Uh, oh, I'm go I'm going back next week for Thanksgiving. And I'm gonna I'm gonna play in stool pigeon with them. Like, oh, that's great. They're great. Tell them I uh, tell them BOC says what's up, and then it happens, and then that gets. That is another fun byproduct of this community as well, because I, I, a guy I met at camp who was from Detroit and lives in New York now, like a year or two ago, I got an email from Jared Waltzer. He's saying like, hey, me and that guy are on a house team tonight, uh, and we just spent like the last hour talking about you at the bar. Uh, he says hello. And I was just like, oh, man, how can you not feel fucking great about that? That Utah, that Utah off-the-cuff connection, it's yes. like, I mean without that connection i feel like when i got to la i would have been drowning and i already was yeah. drowning i feel like my first year in la was so hard and i i almost feel like i was a different person because i was just like struggling you know and but oh, that yeah. connection and being able to walk into iOS and know people and have them know the community i was coming from was like a fucking lifesaver any night you can go on there you know you're going to know at least three or four people so that you can like miss, just I be around that. people. Yeah. yeah. That's another reason why I'm like, hey, uh, if you open a new improv theater, have something else there that isn't like a bar, a coffee shop, a library, something so that you can have a sense of community that doesn't require you to be, what's the word I'm looking for? There's no transactional aspect. I'm not here to do a show. I'm not here because you're paying me to do it because I'm an employee. I'm here just because I want to be around these people. And these people may just be here just because it's a cool place to be. That's how we got Lauren Miller. Lauren Miller just moved to the neighborhood and just stopped by because she looked through the windows and was like, this seems really cool. Everyone seems to be like laughing and smiling and having a good time. It doesn't seem like all the rest of this fucking nightmare that I'm walking down that is Hollywood Boulevard. Let me go in here. And then started hanging out and then started hanging out with a couple of friends like Ryan Heine and Chris Alvarado. And she's like, so what are you guys doing? Like, oh, well, it's 11 o'clock. We're about to do a cage match. And she walked in and she walked and she saw a kick drum decade like in the in pretty early, but still like heavy. And she was like, there are 150 people in this room. These guys and Genevieve are so funny. Everyone's laughing. Everyone's acting like this is a rock and roll concert. Everyone wants. And then afterwards I sat in the bar and people bought me beers and Chris Alvarado, who I'd literally just met an hour before was like, yo, hold on. This is my friend, Lauren. Lauren's moving here. She just got here from Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. I can't remember. Anywho, she's great. Right. And she was just like, how, how, like, 
What is this godsend? It's about passing on that love, man. Cause I'm like Lauren Miller and Rebecca Stevens were those people for me when I walked in and, and I just, yeah, I love that you want to be that for other people. You know, it's so beautiful. I, I actually, you know, we're probably taking up a lot of your time. It's all right. I got to go pick up a wine rack from Justin Ware that I'm going to go to a, a super fancy like grocery store where I'm allowed to probably buy like one thing. It's my, it's going to be treat myself. They'll just look at you and they won't even, they won't even accept yeah. your money. They'll just say you, sir, can only buy one thing here. <laughs> I know you're right. I know. I, I know who I am. It's fine. You mean me, the guy, in the, the guy in the wrestling t-shirt? No. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So to wrap up, I guess I just, sure. is there anything that you, if you could either go back in time to tell young you, or just if you could tell a young artist, someone who's young, in an art form now like what you wish you had known when you started improv or filmmaking or or something that maybe you you know bad advice you got that you wish that somebody had told you wasn't true i know those are sort of opposite questions no that's fine i mean i feel like when you say like well if there's anything i could go back to tell my young self i immediately thought of share and moonstruck and just like slap out of it because <laughs> the, the the irony <laughs> is is that uh August 18th of August 28th of 2020 made it 20 years to the day that I had moved to LA. I landed in LA on August 28th of 2000. I was engaged to be married at the time and I landed on August 28th. Uh, she left me on Halloween an hour before I had to be at work. I was 24 years old. Uh, that was pretty much it as I'm sitting there holding my cat and trying to pull my shit together so I can go work at my pool hall. And that was kind of the, the sort of thing that kicked it off where I was like, if I'm not going to kill myself now, when? If it's not going to be today, if it's not going to be literally right now at your lowest, then when is it going to be? All right, fuck it. So yeah, and then I spent the next three years kind of dicking around and feeling sorry for myself, making a lot of money after hours uh, running a pool hall. I wish I had found this art form sooner, not only because of the selfish need to be like, when I think of a Heather Ann Campbell, my sister, Heather does everything I do, but just better. And I'm so glad that uh, she's not Heath Campbell because then I wouldn't get any fucking acting roles either, right? You know, just like, oh, great, he's here. He's getting the gig. Never mind. It's the way that Crowley would talk about Ryan Gall. He'd walk into a commercial audition and be like, oh, Ryan Gall's here? I'm going to go home. He's getting it. He's it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Uh, that happened to him for like two years straight. He just walked in, saw Gall. He was like, oh, no. and then Gall. And then, and then he would see him on commercial eating Tostitos. He's like, fuck it. Uh, we're all still friends. I'm, I'm just busting balls. Yeah. Uh, but Heather started this when she was 15 and like, God, what I would have given to have access to that. But I grew up in a small town in North Carolina. We didn't have like, I didn't even know that film or improv or sketch is something that you could do for a living. I thought that was stuff that was like a magic wand that came around. It wasn't until I watched the, the old Nickelodeon show out of control where they had Diz, the stage director character. I was like, that's the first time I became aware that there was actually jobs behind the camera, that there was even a thing about that, which is funny because it was nine, like, I think I was like eight or nine when I saw that show for the first time. The irony is that remember the newsstand? Do you guys know the show Out of Control? Mm-hmm. It's a Canadian show that uh, started playing on Nickelodeon back in the day. They would like play reruns of it along right next to like you can't do that on television, all those kind of deals. Dave Coulier's first show, Uncle, what's his name from uh, Full House? That was his first show. Anyway, Diz was this sort of like wackadoo character who's like, Dave, what are we going to do? The show's going to fall apart. She would like do this, uh, like this high pitched like laugh thing. And she would wear mismatched clothes and heavy makeup and big nails. Uh, not like a clown, but like definitely like a personality. It felt like a Pee Wee's Playhouse kind of deal for sure. And that was the first time I ever put two and two together that there were jobs behind the camera. 
on Cahuenga Boulevard, that newsstand. Yep. Diz worked there. That's her. And the Boston Red Sox jersey with the blonde hair, and like and the pigtails and all that. That's Diz. Wow. Wow. This business is a tough, tough fucking town. And I never, unfortunately, I just never worked up the courage or and or found the polite way to stop. Because I, I went and bought you know, magazines and gum from her all the time, snacks, you know, on the way to IO, like uh, uh, classes in five minutes, I'll just get something. I never found the way before that newsstand shut down and she disappeared to go up to her and be like, Hey, I watched you as a kid. You were like sort of the first inspiration for me to like go in the movie business. And like, and I just, I just premiered my movie at slam dance. And I wanted to thank you for like, help me become But there's, I couldn't find a way to say that, that I didn't, that I wasn't concerned. I was going to be bumming her out or, reminding her of whatever state like i just didn't know a way in uh but that, that's that's you talk about a callback <laughs> that's a pretty pretty great callback <laughs> so i think i would go tell a young person to remember that you don't have to do all at once if you haven't directed your first film by the time you're 25 that's not the fucking in the world i i lived under that pressure that self-induced pressure for so long and it's just not true like one of the best improvisers i know right now is Krim. And Crimmins, she goes by Crim. She's 70 years old. We, we follow each other on like Twitter now. We're all friends. It's great. Rodney Dangerville didn't start until he was 40. Kathy Bates was my, when I graduated from college, she was the keynote speaker, but then also she did like a, a Q&A with us when we came out to visit and like show our movies. And she was one of the first people to be like, she's like, look, I, my f- acting teacher in college said, unfortunately, you're going to have to grow into your roles. He was like, you are perfect for these types of roles but you won't cast in those roles until you're 40 or 45 because of your look. Not, and it wasn't, it wasn't him being sexist. She was very, uh, very clear about it. She wasn't him being sexist. Wouldn't be misogynist. He was saying like, you're an incredible actor. And she was like, and it was true. She was like, there were moments where I was hurt. She was on Broadway at Frank and Johnny at the Claire de Lune. It was her and Robert De Niro. And then they made the movie with Robert De Niro and fucking Catwoman with Michelle Pfeiffer. Right. Like she was like, there was many times along the way that I could, I could have beat myself up or given up and said it was hopeless. I didn't say it out loud, but thinking to myself, I'm like, that was probably a fucking big one when they replace you in the movie with Michelle Pfeiffer. That's gotta be a fucking gut, gut punch. And she's like, but I just stuck it through. And then she was like, what, 40, 41 for misery. And it has just worked ever since Emmy Oscars. Like, like does anyone not love Kathy Bates? I love Kathy Bates. And I, I, fucking love misery it's like one of my favorite books i love the movie and also this is very nice to hear because i had so many professors in college who would be like auditioning for the shakespeare play and they're like you're just not you're not gonna be juliet sorry you gotta wait till you're 45 and um i like hearing this thank you brian yeah and it's all that like sean bean wasn't sean bean until game of thrones like yeah he was in patriot games and a couple others but like it's lord of the rings and game of thrones is what took those guys over And, and you can name like dozens of those examples right there are people that are like fucking legends of broadway that you couldn't you couldn't pick out of a lineup on the street couldn't get arrested right there are people that do because i know some from doing voiceover but also like knowing people that do voiceover like at a much higher level like great great de la sill and like all those people there are people when like you look at what they've done live action you're like oh a couple things in the 70s like two or three things in the 80s and then you look at their voiceover you're like Dude, that guy is the voice of everything, like everything. Holy shit. You, you just, you never know what your path is going to be. Be open to it. I made the joke earlier. I wasn't joking. I definitely need representation. <laughs> that is, I, that's kind of the thing that I'm running into right now is there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people that won't 
represent uh, hyphenates. I don't understand it. Maybe it's just the old Irish Catholic blue collar redneck in me that says you don't want multiple ways to make money. But I get the idea that it's a sort of narrative uh, marketing based of like, I only represent writers because I want to be able to go to a person and say, this is my sci-fi guy. This is my comedy punch up guy. This is my heart guy. This is my single cam guy. And I get that to a certain extent. I don't know. I see a lot of people that like got famous for one thing and then there were big and then did all those other things. Like I want Patton Oswalt's career. I want Seth Rogen's career. Like that guy can do anything and whatever they want. Like I don't, I don't think they sucked at any of those things before. Seth Rogen didn't be fa- didn't get famous as an actor and then turn around and was the only guy to be able, him and his best friend were the only guys able to bring preacher to the screen because he was a famous actor. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. in my less charitable moments, because I'm I'm not perfect. There are moments here and there where I get down on myself. Where I'm like, am I being fucking punished for being good at a lot of things? Because I don't know how that's fair. You guys didn't know I did the music for that goddamn movie until I told you. Like Mm-mm. there was one on, moment on, during when the music came up that and it was like kind of safe. I, and I turned to Jacob and I was like, motherfuckers like trick i was like this music how and it made me like I, it like made me laugh but then also because I was, I was feeling so many feelings and then i was like how dare this music change i know it's a trick i'm going straight back into the murder room and i was i was so mad about the music because it affected me and now that you wrote it i'm like you son that's your sense of humor in there too i don't trust this i know we're I going do, right I back know, into the like, murder room no way you don't get me <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, well, gosh darn it, Ugh. Brian. We hit, It's such a joy to have had you here for the interview today. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. This is, uh, I like I said, honestly, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. We didn't even get into that much heat, man. Not even that much tea. <laughs> no, I feel like we're relatively back, unscathed <laughs> is what I thought we were going to be coming into this. Well, it's just, there's so many important, like the, I think the future of improv theaters is that you're going to have to have a lot of tiny bespoke theaters that do one thing or a couple things very, very well. And they make their money on something else or it's, or like a traveling band of like, you know, not minstrels. What do you call it? Like, like, you know, when you go to uh, uh, the Renaissance fair, the guys with the lutes and all that, what do you call them? Are you talking about like gypsies? What do you call it? No, like you're playing D&D, like the, the group of like, ah, we're the money. We play the music. Bards. The bards. Bards, yeah. We're just like a traveling group of what a musicians. Bunch of nerds. Yeah, everyone went, bards? Revealed <laughs> <laughs> the nerdiness. I just, the idea of improv theaters, the improv theaters and improv training centers being these huge monoliths. And I kept my mouth shut about it for years and years because I was like, look, I have a lot of friends. I, I don't want to like I don't want anyone to think that I'm making fun of them or all that. But the very first day that someone told me that there were a thousand people lined up around the block, literally a thousand people lined up around the block multiple times to audition for UCB House Herald teams. I went, this is unsustainable. Not only is this unsustainable, it's probably wrong. And then when people are like, well, they expanded because they needed more stage time because they owed it to their students. I'm like, did they, did they owe it to them? Is there something wrong about being like, not exclusivity. I don't want to say that because that's the opposite of inclusivity and diversity. And that's the stuff that we're trying to unfuck from the last 15 to 20 years of improv theaters. But like, is there something wrong with just the stuff that's on the stage, just being the creme de la creme. And if you can't get on stage at that place, then fuck them and go start your own shit. 
I want 50 improv theaters. I want improv to be known in Los Angeles, just something that you do. I'm, I'm going on a first date. What are you going to do? I'm taking her out to dinner and then to an improv show, which oh, the one over on the West side. Ah, nice. Well done. Well done. Just to have it be obsequious, just to be part of the normal conversation ingrained in part of the vein of the culture that it's just people don't even think of a time where they didn't go to improv shows. And so having all these centralized places, I quote the old man all the time, but like, Another thing that Miles says that has always stuck with me is like the moment that you need an improv theater more than the improv theater needs you, you should fucking leave that place, leave that place and go to your own. When I was booking the pack, one of the first things I told myself, I was like, I am not going to do this other shit that I've seen other people do, like get bent out of shape. Like, you know, I put up their show first. They owe us for what we did. Like all that. This is a 42 seat black box theater. The moment you get too big for these walls and you move to another place, I was overjoyed when the Color Collective left the Pack Theater. I was overjoyed. And it was funny because Stacey Rubacher was like, oh, it's weird you're going to be mad at me. I was like, no, you're worried about all the other times people have gotten mad at you. I'm not that guy. I'm not that kind of AD. I was like, I was overjoyed that they grew too big for us and had to go to the fucking, the Virgil. I was overjoyed when Hellcross could no longer fit their crowd into our theater and had to move to three in clubs, an actual rock venue. That means I did my fucking job right. And then again, professionally, then I just get the creme little creme because everyone goes like, hey, if you want if you want your show to take off, get booked at the pack because that's the place where shows develop and get really good and then leave to go other places and get paid to do stuff. And then and then I'm just looking at a thousand different great groups versus the same fucking two dozen. Hey, we do a montage and sometimes a mono scene. We don't have a coach. And by the way, when we show up five minutes before our show, only three of the seven of us are going to be here. And we're not really going to have an answer where the other four are, but that's fine because we kind of just shrug our shoulders like it's happened a hundred times. We uh, either stand outside on the sidewalk talking and smoking cigarettes uh, while we wait for the first team to go on, or we go on first and then walk right out the back, do not watch the second team, and then go over uh, and uh, to the bar and have a couple of beers. Fuck that forever. That shit is gone forever. I hope all the theaters are allowed to stay open and have money. And I'm worried about them because they're my friends, all these tiny independent theaters. But I hope when they get back online and we're able to have crowds again, the last thing they do is book that fucking horseshit ever again. I had to get one hot take in there. We got it. One hot take. Yeah. yeah we got to let you go. But man, thank you so much for being here, Brian. Yeah. yeah thank we'll you, we'll Brian. have you back on to get the rest of those takes out. Don't worry. This isn't the last time. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> of course. Absolutely. Thanks, buddy. We'll see yeah, you yeah, soon. Yeah, yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. What a guy. We are so grateful for Brian and his passion and his vulnerability and his vision for how great improv is and can be. Please go follow Brian on the Instagram at B3OC. That's B, the number three, OC. And go watch Helldan on the Sci-Fi channel. And of course, if you haven't seen Bloodsucking Bastards already, I can't recommend it enough. As always, we want to thank you for listening. Thank you for your five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for subscribing. And thank you for following on the Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Storm Chaser Improv. This podcast is currently looking for sponsors. So if you have a class or a product or a multi-billion dollar corporation that needs plugging, please reach out. You can connect with us on our website at www.stormchaserimprov.com. That's it for now. You know the drill. Chase that storm, baby. Thank you for listening to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show.